A lot of the stuff that futurists talk about actually comes from things like the Jetsons or sci-fi and little bite-sized chunks and bits and pieces. I never thought I'd be talking about VR porn on the podcast. Basically what happens with VR porn is that you are immersed in the experience that neurochemicals elicit very similar reactions to if it's real life. 2032 Brisbane Olympics is coming and Brisbane City Council has said that they will introduce and make sure they have autonomous flying taxis. Optimise performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hey, it's Andrew and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Dr. Ben Hamer is the Chief Futurist and Head of Future Work Advisory at creativecubes.co and he previously drove the Future of Work Practice at PwC Australia. Ben is Adjunct Professor at Edith Cowan University Centre for Work and Wellbeing and he has left his mark at the World Economic Forum and Yale University as a visiting scholar. You sound so intelligent when I read this out, Ben. A few years ago, Ben became the youngest non-exec director appointed to the Australian HR Institute's board. He has taught both undergraduate and postgraduate courses at leading Australian universities, and he regularly features across Australian media. You're prolific in your exposure, providing expert commentary on the future of work. Ben is a New South Wales and Australian representative netball player. You left that off your bio, champ, so I've added it. He tells me that he enjoys morning coffee in bed, he colour blocks his outfits, and he uses politically incorrect humour as a defence mechanism. Dr. Ben Hamer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. If I start telling bad jokes, you know I'm uncomfortable. Right. Well, it'll make me feel home, mate. It's it's my story. My stick is bad joke. So color blocking, I want to start on that. My understanding of color blocking is you choose colors that are totally opposite each other and you pair them together and or just primary colors. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big fan of logos. I think my personality speaks for itself. So I like to keep it pretty simple, but like to experiment a little bit. Ben, my dad, Trev, he's been color blocking for years. Dad's colorblind and I can't tell you how many times on holidays or even at home, they're now on the Gold Coast. This happened last Christmas. Dad came out and he had a pair of, I think they were brown shorts and a red Christmas looking top. It was just horrific. And because of his color blindness and dad isn't really into fashion when they gave out the fashion stakes or sticks. I think dad left his on the table and mum was like, oh, Trev, that looks terrible. So there you go, my dad. And I don't think dad listens to podcasts because Wizard, he actually asked me recently, are you doing that podcast thing? And he was trying to explain to my sister what it is. It was obvious he had no idea. So anyway, my dad has been a trendsetter on this, Ben, on colour blocking. Does that mean dad's a futurist? Is he, I mean, is he just tell him. To, I think it means he probably lives in Newtown or something because that's pretty trendy there. Uh, Trev was born in Forest Reefs outside Wagga, cultured in Dubbo. He's now on the Gold Coast. (laughs) You can read a lot into that. Right, we're not here to talk about Trev. We're here to talk about the future and you. A rough frame for today. One, I want to know what a futurist does. Like, is this a made-up job? Like, Because we used to work at KPMG, so it's always lovely to catch up. Little Benny back then, I look at you now out there flourishing, but have you just made this shit up? I want to look at what is a futurist. Two, let's look at the future of work. Then we'll go to the future of life, the future of sport, and we'll cover performance uncovered. But a little twist, I didn't tell you we're going to do this. I want to look at the future of you as well. Let's predict what you're doing down the track. So let's start, number one. What is a futurist? Like, did, seriously, did a bunch of you guys just get together? You, Don Price from Atlassian, a couple of US guys, and just go, hey, let's let's create a new title. 
I mean, it's not far off it. So, I mean, talking about parents, my parents still don't know what I do. And when I say futurist, my dad says it's a professional bullshit artist. So read into that as you will. But like Don Price will say that he, when he started at Atlassian, got the opportunity to give himself any job title. So he came up with work futurist. I think, though, that it's a growing appreciation that so much is changing around the world. Like I often say that we're experiencing change at the fastest rate in human history, but also the slowest we'll experience for the rest of our lives. And you can't as an individual consume so much content to really feel like you've got a good grasp on what that looks like. And so the realm of futurists is to really get an understanding around what are the signals of change that we're experiencing today? What are the kind of trends that are coming about? And not just looking one, two years into the future, because we think really short term, uh, because there's so much coming at us, it's thinking, 5, 10, 15 years into the future. And then I do a lot of work with organizations to then say, well, what does that mean for, for example, an energy company? What kinds of energy should you be investing in in 10 years time that you have to start building the infrastructure for today? So there's, you know, you can get certified in it, which I've done. You can join a professional association. So how do you get certified? Do you, do you send away to the futurist inc.com or is there a, a course or a program? I'm showing my lack of awareness about these new careers come. Am I sounding like am I sounding like your parents? Because it's funny when you say that I had a chuckle. My mum still thinks that I do fitness for sporting teams. You know, I, I work in mental skills now and recently she said, so, so what, what do you actually do with sporting teams now? So hilarious our parents have no idea. But yeah, what, what's the accreditation to be a futurist? Yeah, so I started out doing a marketing degree. So my parents think I work in marketing. I did one year working in marketing, but that's besides the point. So um, you can study to be uh, a futurist in terms terms of um, different courses that are increasingly coming into university, but through individual providers, particularly coming out of the US. So there's an Institute for the Future, that's the, the main one there. Then you've got a central body, which you have to, similar to like a CPA for an accountant, you have to essentially do study, do an exam, pass it, meet certain criteria, and then you get certified. And then once you've hit all of those obstacles, they'll admit you into this professional association. I'm provoking you and being a little bit playful, which is the way you like presenting, so I'm flipping it back on you. So there is a chartered process now around becoming a futurist. That was for any of the skeptics who are going, mate, he's just got one of his ex-KPMG buddies on and they're making this shit up. Well, we make a bit of it up. Well, yeah. <laughs> In futurist.com, I read an article with Nicholas Badminton, what a great surname, titled, What is a Futurist? Nicholas says, simply put, a futurist, also known as a futurologist, futurist speaker, foresight practitioner, I think he's made some of those up, Benny, is a person that has unbounded curiosity about what our futures may hold. They practice foresight, right? Organize events and engage with people to challenge their poverty of imagination. How good is that? Challenging our poverty of imagination. Futurists ignite new thinking without restrictions of the industrial complex that we find ourselves ensnared by. What do you think of Nicholas's definition of a futurist? He's probably a futurist and uh, got away with words as well. That's much better than how I put it. I don't, poverty of imagination, that's a bit harsh. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a really good segue into an article. I loved researching this for you and I went back to my childhood. We'll put the overlay music on this. You're probably too young to remember, but I grew up watching a cartoon and it was in colour before you ask. It was called The Jetsons. Do you know The Jetsons? Yeah, so The Jetsons was released in 1962. So that's potentially showing 
your age. Well, I was watching the <laughs> Jetsons well after that. Reruns, yeah, reruns. Like 62, mate. That was 13, 14 years before I was born. The theme track, though, me, George Jetson, his wife, Judy. Anyway, in this article, which was on Screen Rant, 14 times the Jetsons predicted the future. So if anyone ever says to you, ah, oh, futurists are all made up, just go to the Jetsons. Here are some of the predictions. In 1962, the article says, viewers were first introduced to an animated TV sitcom. You've done your homework. About a shiny future world of flying cars, sky-high cities and spaceships. It was called the Jetsons, loving couple George and Jane, their kids Judy and Elroy, their dog Astro and the housekeeper Rosie the Robot. Here are some of the predictions they had. Electronic house cleaners called Roombas. Yeah, we've got one of those at home. Actually, the dog ate it. It's being fixed. Oh, best Christmas present I've ever gotten, by the way. Aren't they great? Love it. Flat screen TVs, pollution, video chats, smart watches. Kids would control technology. Drones. They were dropping the kids off. There's an episode showing the two kids, Judy and Elroy, getting dropped off by this electric flying robot. Digital newspapers and space tourism. My God, Elon Musk must have watched Jetsons and got his ideas. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of the stuff that futurists talk about actually comes from things like the Jetsons or sci-fi. And sci-fi kind of is a little bit dramatic, but little bite-sized chunks and bits and pieces. And, you know, I, I think that the most fascinating thing for me from all of this is when we think of the Jetsons, we think flying cars. And we think that that's out of the realm of our lifetime. But uh, in 2020 in New Hampshire in the United States, they uh, introduced something called the Jetsons Law. And so you can actually go and register a flying vehicle and get license plates on it right now in New Hampshire. And then in Australia by 2032- So the government has a law now called the Jetsons Law? Yeah. Do you think Hannah and Barbera back in 1962 had any idea- Seriously, that's profound that a cartoon created by a creative bunch of blokes and their team has now got a a, a law- in, in, in a state in America. That's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And to think, though, as well, that you could actually right now register a flying vehicle. So it it makes it a lot more real. I think it, it's not necessarily that futuristic thing that might be in our children's lifetime. It's in our lifetime. And yeah, closer to home in Australia. So 2032 Brisbane Olympics is coming and Brisbane City Council has said that they will introduce and make sure they have autonomous flying taxis ferrying people around. So not only flying cars, but driverless flying cars taking people around the Olympics. Well, Wizard, did you watch the Jetsons or was that was it your parents watching the Jetsons? Uh, we had the movie on VHS which I watched a couple of times. You had the movie on VHS. Yeah. yeah. See, I had reruns when I was growing. I watched it all the time. Yeah. Well, I, it's all we had, mate. I <laughs> think and bewitched with Samantha. <laughs> I had a bit more choice. <laughs> but but it's fascinating, right? I, I wonder how did those writers come up with the ideas. So when I was provoking saying, what's a futurist? Well, Hannah and Barbera were futurists and they just did it through a cartoon that captivated the world. Yeah. And so you kind of, you start by thinking about what you'd call a signal of change. So what's something that we're seeing today and start to play out different scenarios of what that could look like in the future. So back then it went from using, you know, people who would send posts via mail and then you could actually instantaneously contact someone via a telephone where you'd hear their voice. And so you go, all right, well, what would happen if you heard their voice, but you could also see their face? And that's when you see things like video calls on the Jetsons. What happens if it's not just necessarily on a screen, but a screen that's on your wrist? And that's when you then start to play these sorts of scenarios out. Likely, you know, likewise, they got a lot of stuff, I wouldn't say wrong, they weren't predicting, but stuff that never eventuated. But within that, you get some gems. 
pet treadmills is one of the things they predicted. I don't think we've got pet, and I hope we don't have pet treadmills because I've spent decades telling men and women around the world, if you don't like exercise, buy a dog. I reckon I've done more for dog, or COVID did more for dog sales than that, but I reckon I've got hundreds of people to buy dogs because you've got to get out and walk them. So getting a dog treadmill just just gives me shivers and 3D uh, created food, so 3D printed food. Can you get that? Yeah. So they're actually using 3D printed food now and will more and more in the fight against hunger and homelessness. So you can print a whole heap of different foods. We're going to see in the market in Australia in the end of 2024, so next year, um, we're going to see artificial meat hitting our market. So that's meat that's grown in labs that tastes and looks and feels like real meat. And that will be 3D printed. Yeah, wow. Now, if you futurist as a gang, and I'm sure you've got your handshakes and your digital swag. It's very Al Capone, yeah. <laughs> How come none of you predicted COVID? I mean, some people did. I think Bill Gates said that he did. And there was that, did you ever see that thing on Netflix, Pandemic or whatever it was called? Was it Pandemic? There Something. Were, well, there was a movie a number of years ago where they had these monkeys escaped. And I can't remember the name of the movie. Wiz, do you remember the movie? Oh, yeah, Days Later. Yes, Gosh, you're good on movies. You've done a lot of research. So 28 Days Later. Yeah, but there, there, there's been all these movies and, and there's been, you know, people who have predicted it. And I think it just came a lot sooner than people thought. Like people were thinking 2030 would be the next one because, again, it's not like it's the first pandemic that we've had and there will always be cycles of this coming about. But um, what they're now working on is a super vaccine. So a vaccine that essentially will be able to be rapidly tailored to address any virus that comes at us in the future. So rather than waiting months or years for a cure to a particular pandemic, you can kind of nip it in the bud early on. So the way that we experience pandemics in the future will be very different. But I mean, yeah, some people predicted it. I was too busy thinking about the good stuff than the the bad stuff. So <laughs> it's because you're the difference I see with you and the work you do. You're an optimistic futurist. You're not. We're going to go to hell in a handbasket. The world's going to be polluted. We got we got wars everywhere. I like your message, which is more about how it's going to change for the positive. Keep that as an open loop. I just want to talk about an article in Wired.com, and I just wanted to say Wired.com so you can think I'm a lot cooler than I actually am. And the article was titled, Can Society Learn from the Mistakes of Futurism? Stephen Novella, who I'm sure you know, co-host of the popular podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Great podcast he does with his brothers, Jay and Bob. And in this article, Stephen writes on futurism. When you look at past futurists, the big mistakes they make are not predicting the game changes. Anyone can predict incremental advances, but the things that really trip futurists up are when they think something is going to be a breakthrough and it isn't, or they just entirely miss the real breakthroughs. The big one I can think of is the analog to digital transition. Nobody picked up on that. Mic drop. <laughs> I think though the the thing with futurists is that futurists aren't crystal ball gazers. They're not they're not necessarily making predictions. A lot of what I do is sparking a conversation. I'm not always going to be right, but I'm going to be evidence based. And I want people to have a conversation about what a potential future could look like, but also an equally what we want to avoid. So, you know, the recent intergenerational report that got released and it had a whole heap of negative stuff in it and understandably so, because that's what the data is telling us if we don't change course. But that's what those kind of reports that look 40 years out do. They give us an opportunity to say, this is a future we don't want. So how do we work backwards to avoid it? So it's not always about making predictions. It's about presenting a story and bringing some colour to a potential future state, whether that's going to come to fruition or not. And how do we either work towards it or how do we work against it? 
Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know, you probably hear this on so many other podcasts, and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. Okay, Wizzy's passed the test. We'll let him go through to the next bit because we've done the research for this, Benny. We want to talk about it. But I like how you framed that. And I'm sure you've been challenged before from your parents to family to friends. Like, what do you really do? Like, what, what does the futurist really do? Hey, I'll give you a prediction that was wrong. I'll set the scene. It was a coffee shop in Kirribilli. It's about six months ago. There's this young, svelte guy in his mid-30s talking with this fairly fit guy who was approaching 50 probably at the time. And the, the guy approaching 50 said to the young guy, I don't think you can get a job as a futurist working for an organisation because there's a guy named Dom Price at Atlassian and he does it, but I don't know whether you'll be able to do that with other organisations. Do you want to pick up on that prediction? So um, I think the guy you're talking about, pretty tall, very attractive. Funny. If I was to put myself in his shoes, right? Yeah, I ended up going from a career in first government, then consulting, now into working with the title chief futurist, which I did get to pick. So, you know, you make the call whether or not it's made up. Yeah, working with organisations to to kind of not just do strategy. Strategy is very much what's what's happened in the past and projecting that history forward. But again, how do we take where we are today? How do we extrapolate that into a future, play in different scenarios and work backwards around bringing a bit of sense of awareness and control to work towards that preferred future? So uh, being able to bring that capability to organisations, whether they're SMEs or some of your really big businesses and brands here in Australia, which is pretty exciting. Now, I'm trying to do a little bit of ambiguous storytelling. That was me in case anyone missed it. So we had a coffee. Uh, you were still employed at PwC at the time and you were looking and you were open about this with your employer and big shout out to Lawrence. We'll make sure Lawrence gets a copy of this and your team at PwC. But when you said to me, that's what you wanted to do. And I was being provocative and I said, look, I don't really see, and I've got to finish out so people don't think I'm an absolute arsehole. I said, but go prove me wrong. And you did. So when I saw it pop up on LinkedIn, your futurist, when you're at creativecubes.co, I was really excited for it. And that's what prompted me to reach out and say, hey, let's have a coffee. Let's catch up, but let's talk about this. And you've just mentioned the intergenerational report, which was, I don't think it was authored by Jim Chalmers, but they gave it to Jim, right? There would have been a team. He was the spokesperson. So my understanding of this, I'll give it to our listeners, right? We'll give you the high level. There's three things I took out of this, Ben. In 40 years time, we're all going to be older, hotter, and in more debt. And I'll Take what you said before. Give me the mic back. I'm going to drop it. There it is. I've just done the intergenerational report, people. In 40 years, you're going to be older, hotter, and in more debt. That's it. I mean, you're telling me I'm going to be hotter in 40 years' time. I'll take it. But um, Environmentally hotter right? uh, is what I read in the report. The world is getting a lot hotter. We are ageing, but I'll put an asterisk on that because there was a report in New York Times which backed up research Dr. Tom Buckley and I spoke about in our best-selling book, Match Fit. You and I talk about lag time. I've only just started saying best-selling and not feeling like a wanker. (laughs) But we've cracked over 100,000 copies. So I've been told recently, you've got to say best-selling. So Tom and I wrote this in MatchFit, that we're talking about this exposure theory that kids born now, we predicted aren't going to live as long as their parents. This is what they said in the New York Times article. 
for the first time in two centuries, the current generation of children in America may have shorter life expectancies than their parents, according to a new report, which contends that the rapid rise in childhood obesity, if left unchecked, could shorten lifespans by as much as five years. So while we're predicting or the intergenerational report is saying people of our vintage will be older, it's a real question mark around young kids if they don't move more, stop eating the shitty processed food and get off technology all day, lifespan's going backwards. Yeah, and so, I mean, in the the sort of the shorter term and shorter term being sort of the next 10 years, globally we're going to see the average age increase. So I think it goes from something like 72 to 73, 74. And for kids who are born today, it's more likely than not in Western countries that they're going to live into the next century, which is pretty uh, overwhelming to think about sometimes. So, yeah, we're seeing things like improved healthcare, the ability to use technology to address complex and chronic illnesses, which is actually helping. And, and, and supporting people living longer. And I think, as you said, it, it's building our health literacy to be able to address things like the obesity epidemic and other things. But ultimately, it depends on where you live in the world. So in Africa, for example, in sort of the next couple of decades, one in four children are going to live in Africa. When it comes to South Korea and Japan, they're already experiencing a population decline. So in South Korea, they're actually giving cheaper mortgages to people who have children as a way of incentivizing people to have kids kids because the fertility rates are dropping that much. So the way that we're going to track population over time is going to be pretty fascinating. Health will be part of it. Um, as we see more females enter and stay in the workforce, that's also contributing towards a, a drop in fertility rates, which is you know, a positive thing in one hand because you've got greater female participation, but then you know, drop in fertility rates. Now that in Australia, you know, we're going to track to be less than two. So, you know, we're going to see a population decline at some point. Not as fun. But yeah, it's a pretty interesting thing to map out and see how it plays out. Do you have a life? Like, I'm just wondering, like, do you go home and just get on the interweb and read all that? Like, where, where do all these statistics come from? And I've said this to you before when we catch up, you are walking talking encyclopedia on where everything's going. And and we'll, we'll get into work soon. I've got a few specific questions. So I, I do the frame more to keep me on track so I don't throw you off track. But where do you get your research study? And Because there's so many different weaves and threads that you talk about. So how do you do that? I guess that's the, the benefit of uh, being a futurist is that it's my job. So, you know, it's not like I have a day job where I'm consumed doing completely different work from nine to five and then in the evenings I do my research. Like it's part of my day-to-day -day doing research and writing reports, doing keynote speaking. I'm writing a book at the moment, all to do with this sort of stuff. So I'm really fortunate that I'm continually learning and absorbing and, you know, then I talk to people like you and then I, you know, learn more about a particular topic and then that adds to your arsenal. You talk to people like me and you prove him wrong. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've used your stuff around MatchFit and particularly, um, so I do a bit in the leadership space. And so when I'm talking about performance intelligence, which which you've sort of coined and the different bits and pieces around how as a leader you need to look after the physiology and everything just as much as, as the other stuff. So that adds to the toolkit. And then, you know, talking to, to different people, going to different conferences that you speak at, but staying and absorbing the content, it all kind of yeah, aggregates. I, I love hearing that because I will often look at, well, I always look at the conference card when it's a big event and I'll go, oh, I'd love to see her. Oh, I haven't seen him. So it is a great way of learning. Yeah. The future of work, talk to me, crystal ball in front of us. What does work look like? And, and you, you hear constantly that the jobs that are going to be here in 40 years don't exist. Is that true? 
No, I think that a lot of it's bullshit, to be honest. So, uh, you know, I saw an article that said in four years' time, 10% of jobs won't exist because of generative AI like ChatGPT, which, again, just feeds into that fear-mongering. The, the vast majority of jobs, at least in the next 10 to 15 years, will still exist. They will just have evolved and look really different. So... For example, when the calculator came about, people were like, oh, that's the end of accountants. We don't need accountants anymore. Now, I don't know about you, but just because I have a calculator, I'm not necessarily doing my tax return. So what it means is that accountants are actually able to spend less time doing number crunching and more time doing more value-adding work. Or when the ATM was introduced and people were like, well, that's the end of bankers. Now bankers still exist. There's more of them. They just don't dispense cash. They do all sorts of other stuff. So it's the same with, with your job, with my job, with people who work, whether they're in a factory or they work in an office. Their job will still likely exist, just looking very different. Yeah, I, I agree on that. It's it's more of an upskilling rather than a total backflip. However, there is a group when I think of very labour intensive, like processing information, journalists. So I look at what Ange is leading in our business, Drive Stronger now, with some of the research. And, and you've got to be very careful. If you're lazy on chat GPT, you put stuff out and it's incorrect because it's not evolved enough yet that it does actual factual checks. So if anyone's using chat GPT to say it's science-backed or evidence-backed, you've got to do that next step, right? But when you train the system and put in good information, you get out good info, that's saving us days, mate, in some of the work we're doing, in yeah. some of the research. So I think of researchers. I think of journalism. Like, what's a newsroom going to look like in 40 years' time? Already you look at it, newsrooms now, the work that I do on ABC and you know, like you pop up on other channels periodically. Channel 7 have just moved to their new premise. It's all electronic. That There's hardly a floor person. You might have a floor manager now. That's it. What's it going to look like in 40 years? Yeah, well, I mean, like the, the caution before I get into that around chat GPT is a really good one. There was a case in the US a few months ago where a lawyer who has over 20 years of experience submitted a briefing to a Supreme Court judge and the judge saw that there were six citations of cases that were entirely made up, at which point the guy then said, oh, yeah, so I use chat GPT to write it. So uh, you really need to at do your fact At which time his credibility went down the drain pipe. Absolutely. And I'm on the other side of the world talking about it. So it's not a good look for him. But in terms of something like journalism, so that's already something that we're seeing play out. If you look at the the Screen Actors Guild and the Hollywood Writers Strike, that's partly in response to the impact of generative AI and chat GPT and the lack of clarity around what it will mean for workers and protections for workers. There's a group of tech journalists in the US who have started to unionise because media outlets have been starting to lay off tech journos because they're getting AI to write the articles for them. I don't know about you, but I can tell pretty quickly when AI has written an article. The worst thing that someone could possibly do, and that really pisses me off, is they'll start an article by saying, this is a groundbreaking and riveting article about, and I'm like, bang, you've used ChatGPT because I'm the reader and I'll make a decision whether or not it's groundbreaking and riveting. But then also, it just means, again, that the role will exist but still evolve because you know, uh, ChatGPT can't do investigative journalism. It can't pick up the phone to you and say, hey, Andrew, I want to write an article about this. You had this particular experience that I know of. Can we talk about it? And I'll bring some colour to that article. So, yes, sort of your, you know, general sort of churning out easy to write articles that are just this event's happened, quickly write me a news piece and get it out there. That could go to ChatGPT or Gen AI. But as humans, we want the story, we want the background, we want the emotion. That's not what this technology will be able to do. So the processing for digital platforms and back-end content, it's phenomenal. The leverage you have in the scale on all this. 
but you still got to do the thinking, and that's where where I'm holding the space on this because I've been asked quite a lot in re- in recent briefings, especially in banking. Because I think they're like panicking some of the banks around the world. Are we going to lose all of our retail bank staff? And go well, we don't know what's going to happen. But what I know, and this is where I'm, I'm biased, Ben. But when you look after your physiology and that leadership capacity, so when you're protecting your time, when you're boosting energy and focusing attention, you're a better version of yourself at work, at home, everywhere in between. You'll then make better decisions about what technology to use and what technology is being abused and what technology to leave rather than this hysteria that chat GPT and bots are going to take over the world. I think it's a little bit hysterical. Yeah, absolutely agree. And and so we're also going to be wanting to have like lots more short form media. We're going to see lots of reels. We were talking about TikTok before. You said you're getting your content on TikTok now. That's sort of the way that we're going to be seeing. Now, now, now I just, <laughs> you're saying that smiling. I, I had two things on that. One is I did say to you, yes, yeah, Shannon is now, got, has got a TikTok account. And with some of the numbers Shannon's getting on that, I am a bit of a skeptic question. Are you really getting hundreds of thousands? But the engagement on TikTok, I think if you're out there with a message and you want people to know, you've got to be on the platforms, right? So we are experimenting with that, absolutely. I feel pretty cool telling you that. But I heard you in a conversation you had with Triple J as part of my audio Speaking research. Speaking of trendy, I Speaking was on Triple J, thank yeah, you. Tri- tri- triple J. And a 19-year-old is now head of TikTok in a large organisation you're talking about. Yeah. So there's a, a title called Head of TikTok. Yeah, Chief of TikTok, which is something that's going to be happening more and more in companies, right? There's going to be, uh, we're already seeing off the back of the pandemic, like a head of hybrid or a chief remote work officer. It's becoming more common to have a chief mental health officer. And uh, one of my favourite ones, so in Japan, you can get paid $80 an hour to be a smiling instructor because with wearing masks, apparently Japanese people have forgotten how to smile. Well, the things you learn, I'm about to start doing some work in Japan with sports, so I'll have to there you go. read up on that. Just, so seriously, just get that into your toolkit. You can make some they've money. They've lost the ability to, to well, smile. Well, as in people are, are seeking, seeking that out. So you mm. can be a smiling coach. Let's go back to a place where you and I both worked. So stripping. Did you <laughs> say stripping? <laughs> Just making sure you're listening. Okay, <laughs> I thought we going, were going to tell anyone going, about what, that. What, what? Yeah, that was the old days. I think people, if people saw the video of this, they'd look at you and me and they'd be like, yeah, I can see Andrew stripping, but I don't know about the other guy. <laughs> Your face just dropped. Uh, when we worked in consulting together in a consulting firm, what is a global consulting firm going to look like in 40 years? Yeah, I mean, what's a global consulting firm going to look like in the next year, I think, is even going to be a big question with what's playing out in Australia. I think that consulting's going to go under a bit of a transformation because there's a big push in Australia anyway, which was led by the Albanese government coming into power, which is how do we give the skills back to the people who are doing the work rather than this over-reliance on bringing a consultant in, which essentially de-skills your workforce. So I think organisations were just a little bit too happy to spend money to get an external to come in to show them how to do something that they could probably do themselves. So we're going to see sort of a shift in that perspective. I think we're going to see consulting firms be a lot smaller and a lot more fragmented. And so you'll see a lot more, whether or not it's a smaller team, but a lot of people, you know, like you and me, then going out on their own with a niche expertise that someone needs to bring in for a month, for two months, for a year, 
as you know, theoretically a consultant should, rather than sort of having that ongoing reliant codependent relationship. So the structure will be smaller firms, more fragmented, a lot more sole operators, a lot more boutiques, and an expectation that organisations will actually just take on a lot of the work themselves and be more discerning around where they bring in that outside expertise. The, the biggest question I've got on that, it all makes total sense with some of the government work we're doing, uh, both state and some of the, the national stuff, there is this big chat about we've lost a lot of the talent. But when you're paid two or three times the amount to go as a senior government advisor you know, or chief of deputy to jump to a consulting firm and you paid a hell of a lot more money, how's the government going to get these people back in if it's not just paying them a whole lot of money? Yeah, I mean, I'd say two things on that. One is, without trying to go too technical into levels, if within a sort of a consulting organisation, the bottom half of the organisation can get paid more working in the public sector. So it's a bit of a misnomer that you, you go to a consulting firm and you get paid big bucks. As a partner, as a director, yes, you do. Below that, not as much. But what we're also seeing is a massive shift towards purpose over profit, particularly as emerging generations like Gen Z come into the, the workforce. You know, it just doesn't cut it to have organisational values, slap them on a wall and then be done with it. They're oh, expecting- Dan, what are you talking about? We live by the values here, honesty, integrity, respect. I've told you this story. You've probably heard me bang on about this in keynotes. And you're sitting in a boardroom, they're 15 minutes late and no one says anything. It's like, have you guys looked at the mahogany case with your crusty values? Yeah. Honesty, integrity, respect. You're 15 minutes late. You're rude so-and-sos and you haven't said anything. Yeah. yeah, there's been a real disconnect with a lot of companies about value. So Just like write down what companies you're talking about on the paper and we won't tell those guys. Yeah. We're going to go back to stripping or we're going to leave that one? But, um, but we'll, <laughs> we'll move on you from went, stripping. You went red. That was great. I, it's because you've exposed this like this desire I've had to be a stripper my whole life and now I'm just feeling really uncomfortable about oh, it. Now we're going to double click on that. Are you just feeding this? Is that real? Like, no, is that- it is absolutely not real. Although some of the people, some people who are making the most money are people on OnlyFans. So good on them. Yeah, making a fortune, right? Yeah. I mean, it's helping your income, right? Yeah, yeah, I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, but um, but but just to kind of round out that piece around purpose over profit, and if your purpose is stripping, then go for it. What we're seeing is people who are wanting to work for either not for profits, for startups, or organisations where they can see the impact that they're having. People don't want to be a cog in a machine anymore. And if you look at the top seventy-five graduate employers in Australia, only one of the big four banks cracked the top twenty, and only one of the big four accounting firms got in the top seventy-five. So these are not organisations that people, uh, young workers, look at to start and develop their careers like they used to. They want to have impact. And and that kind of then translates into societal expectation on these organisations too, which is why we're seeing companies come out on The Voice, on gay marriage, on Me Too, Black Lives Matter, all of this stuff where previously, and you still get people who are like, you know, you should stay out of political debates. That's not the role of your company. Well, actually, there's more expectation that as a company, you use your platform Platform to drive change within the community. So we're talking about authenticity across everything. There was a well-known saying 15, 20 years ago, you still would have been at school, but around executives at that stage or leaders, you, know, you leave your shoes and you leave your personality at the door. And when you walk in as a male or a female, especially some of the female leaders I've been blessed to work with said that they had to really overcome that. Like, don't bring your feminine side to work. Like, what a load of rubbish. Look where that got us without yeah. empathy and warmth and connection and listening to people. So it's nice hearing that there is going to be a lot more authenticity around that. 
again, I'm going to balance this out, but companies still need to make money. So it's got to connect the two. You've got to have a compelling purpose and a reason for being. Japanese would say you're ikigai, but you've still got to make money and look at the bottom line. Absolutely. But but the argument says that if you're able to focus on making your people happy, engage your workforce, have a positive impact on the community, then you can do more than just make money, but actually you can probably even make more money. So it's about doing it the right way and and not being naive or ignorant in how you go about doing that. But there's a lot of upside to to, to sort of all of it. And I love this idea that 20 years ago, we were saying, you know, leave your shoes at the door. And then now all anyone's talking about is authentic leadership. Yeah. And Dr. Tom and I say, take them off. It's called grounding. So how far have we come Take them off. You're really going on the stripping metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to close on the stripping metaphor. I'm going to give you one on that, but we'll have to wait. Uh, Do you know Andrew Barnes, author of Kiwi Guy, uh, the best-selling book, The Four-Day Workweek? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in an article in The Guardian, the following was written. This model, The Four-Day Workweek, has been attracting significant global attention. There have been glowing reports in the past few years about successive trials in Iceland, the United Kingdom, and elsewhere. Some of this reporting, however, has exaggerated the findings or failed to consider the complicating factors that may not make the model scalable. Yeah, so there's been heaps of trials. We recently ran one here in Australia, which has just finished up. Overwhelmingly positive. Vast majority of companies said they're going to continue the four-day work week. Vast majority of companies said uplifts in productivity. And all the studies essentially show that it results in an uplift in productivity. I think that the concerns come from the idea that it's a pilot. It's been run over six months. So sure, productivity may increase for six months, but what about in three years, four years, five years time? And there's also this reticence from leaders who are saying, well, hang on, I'm going to get my people to do the same work they're doing now in four days. If they can already do it in four days, why am I paying them for five as it is? And that's sort of representative of this broader trend that I'm seeing play out at the moment, which is post-COVID, people have re-evaluated the role of work in their life. They're wanting to put greater work-life boundaries up. It's not about multi-stage career planning. It's not about climbing the corporate ladder. It's around lifestyle design. And so what workers are doing is they're starting to pull back on some of that discretionary effort. Because in Australia, we've been working 6.1 hours of unpaid overtime every week, which equates to almost $500 of lost income a fortnight. And in a cost of living crisis, when organisations aren't paying more in salary, you kind of go, hang on, I'm not going to keep giving you more and more of my time. And so organisations and leaders have sort of been riding this unpaid overtime that they've been getting away with for so long. And now they're getting pissed off that people are wanting to take some of that back. So it's complicated, but largely the four-day work week studies are, are really positive. I often get asked, when and 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 when will it be happening sort of more systemically in Australia it, without getting too boring our industrial framework the laws make it too hard for it to be something that becomes the new normal in the next 5 or 10 years but it'll be a bottom up approach where individual organizations start offering this in Australia you've got Unilever who are doing it people said yeah but what about frontline workers well now Bunnings are doing it as well so we'll start to see that movement happen and i think it will become the new normal in the next 15 to 20 years mm. uh, we've got a couple of team members at Strive Stronger. Ange has a four-day work week. She's super efficient. A couple of other consultants we work with do four days and uh, one does three and she's amazing as well. But you know why it works, my theory. When people work for five days, they stuff around. Let's, let's pick 
maybe a place where you and I used to work. You, you could have the Monday morning meetings where everyone checks in and, and coffee shop conversations, water cooler, and work doesn't really kick off until late morning or lunchtime. And then Friday afternoon, I know in consulting firms and a lot of organisations that have risk, you never go to risk on a Friday afternoon. You know this is actual fact because everyone's tired and fatigued. And, and for those listening, what do you do on a Friday afternoon at work? Nothing. N-U-F-F-I-N. You don't do high-level cerebral work. So if you round out the edges, take off Monday morning where people are getting in. How was your weekend? Wizard. Oh, your beard's grown, mate, on the weekend. How's your turtle? And then if you take off Friday afternoon, compress it. I totally see how it works. Yeah, and that's kind of the logic behind it is that there's a lot of fluff that we embed into our week. And not only that, even throughout the week, think about the amount of pointless meetings that you have, particularly sort of in, you know, big corporates where we have this over-consultation sort of mentality. And so you become a lot more discerning around, actually, I'm only working four days. I've got all this stuff to do. I can't go to that meeting. And as you said, you get these pockets of time that over the day equate to a whole week. Now, when you're expected to work five days a week, there's no incentive to try and remove all of that stuff. Push it into four and you have to. Mm. Two other questions I've got, and then we'll, we'll get on to life. What's it going to look like, this blend between in the office? And it's interesting, a number of Australian and global organisations, I wouldn't say mandate, but it's close to when CEOs come out and say, we want execs, we want senior talent in the business four days a week. So it's really gone from, hey, work anywhere, do what you want, we love you, we've got technology to, hey, we're paying you a lot of money, we expect you here four days a week. So what's it going to look like, this balance between working from home and also in the office or in hubs? And the second question we'll get to is, what's tech going to look like in 40 years? Wow. So um, let's start with the the first one. So in terms of what we're seeing at the moment in Australia, so for people who can work remotely, so say office workers, 20% of people are working five days a week back in the office. So one in five have said, yep, I know I can work from home, but I like going into the office, going to go there every day. But that number was well over 50% pre-COVID. So that's cohorts probably going to stay around the same if you die hard office goers. Most people work half and half across the week. And I intentionally say half and half and not two and three and three and two because people use the office a lot more fluidly. It's not nine to five. It could be, I'm going to start my morning at home and then go in at midday and vice versa. So that sort of hybrid approach is going to be the new normal. I think Where things are getting a little bit confused and it's pretty disappointing is there's this real adversarial conversation between the home or the office and one is better than the other. And hybrid means that you do both. I like that you've said that. It's not not either or, it's and. And and, and when you step back and look at what are the tasks of my job? Yeah. What are the high level cognitive tasks? And I'm specifically talking about a knowledge worker. What's medium where I have to sort of be focused? And, and what's the low level where you might be able to multitask? Because if someone says, oh, you just can't multitask because your brain doesn't switch across the corpus. Yeah, the research is all right on that. But there's areas where you absolutely should focus, do one task, monotask, where you can sort of be in between and, and then at times just do whatever. I'll tell you what not to do. Don't send a podcast guest a message that you meant to send to your daughter about specific dates while you're waiting for aforementioned podcast guests to come and meet you for a coffee before you record the podcast. W- wouldn't that be embarrassing? I legitimately thought you were asking me on a date. <laughs> and I thought, not again. We've spoken about this. It's unprofessional. <laughs> ben, uh, now I'm blushing. Yeah, Wizard, I sent Ben a message that I was meant to send Michaela while I was getting ready for this and I had... Uh, what do you like on these two days, question mark? And Ben thought I was asking him out on a date. 
You know I love you, Benny, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with Tony. And She's I a wonderful woman. when I replied and said, what are you wearing? And it just got a little bit too I much. I said, so. I'm colour blocking, mate. Don't worry about it. You so, are. Yeah, yeah. So back to the question, you're trying to make me blush. That's a classic example, right, where you're trying to do multiple things and you're not focused. So back to how I do it. I will work from home or in the office when no one is in, when I need to do the high-end cerebral. That just makes sense to me. Divide your week into different chunks. Yeah, and that's the the whole point of hybrid, right? Task first, play second. And so when a lot of people come out and say, we mandate you must come in the office Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you're putting place first and trying to retrofit tasks around it, which actually is going to result in a drop in productivity. So there's a, there's a fine line, though, between it. Because, for example, a friend of mine sent me a news article whereby a CEO came out and said, I want us to come back into the office around two days a week. We have frontline workers who are in the office and in our shop fronts five days a week, back office just around two days, but you can pick and choose and work with your teams and you have autonomy for that. And my friend sent me the article like, can you believe this person, rah, 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 and I'm like, we are can believe them because that's hybrid. Two days a week as an expectation, they're not mandating what those two days are, there's still inherent flexibility, autonomy, agency, but that's hybrid and that's okay. So that's where we need to kind of move away from this debate. But then you've also got, you do have people who are, you know, going pretty rogue, who are trying to hold on to the old days. There was a guy at the AFR Property Summit who's doing the rounds virally on socials at the moment, who is saying that he thinks that unemployment in Australia should go up 40 to 50% and employees need to realise that they work for an employer, stop being so demanding, stop having all these expectations and get on and do your job. See, I, I, I like a little bit of that just for the contrary, and I know it's not true. I don't, I don't want to work for that guy, though. I know, I know. Is he really serious or is he just doing yeah. it to stir it up? Okay, so he's a bit of a dinosaur. But the there's a blend in all this because yeah. when you've got people going, I should be able to work from where I want. This is my right. So I had someone say that in a conference recently. I said, look, and I was saying it about the organisation that was paying me. I said, look, I'm being paid to present here today. My view, neutral, forget your organisation. It's called work and there's an exchange. And if the person that's giving you the money says there's an expectation to be be in the office two days a week, that's your contract. And if you don't like it, you probably need to find another one. And you could hear a pin drop. Uh, Yeah. And I don't disagree with it, right? Like, so I disagree with the idea of mandating set days that apply to the entire organization, irrespective of circumstance, the kind of work that you do. Are you customer facing? Are you not? All of that stuff. I think there's a lot more nuance to it. But I, I kind of do have a level of respect for organizations that at least come out and say it. You know, because when you say it, there's there's a clear expectation. And as an employee, you go, I'm either going to subscribe to this or I'm not, and I'll make a call. It's the ones that won't say it, but then there's the subversive communications and all that sort of stuff, or who keep chopping and changing their mind or don't have a clear position or directive on it. So I think, you know, there's that element to it. And organizations also need to, as much as it's work and there's an exchange, at the end of the day, if you want top talent, you do need to have your ear to the ground to what workers want. And in a recent study um, that I was part of, over 50% of workers in the last 12 months who were looking for jobs actively turned down a job because they weren't satisfied with the flexible working provisions. Again, that doesn't mean giving you know entire agency to, to people to do whatever the hell they want. That's too far in that extreme, but it's about balance. Mm-hmm. And so for me, when, when I've sort of advised organizations, my mantra is, if it works for you, your team and your customer, it should work for everyone. So it's not about Andrew has to pick the kids up at this time and then he just doesn't like working morning so he's not going to work. Like It's to say your team needs you to be accessible during these times, your customers need you at these times in these places, 
and then everything else, there's a level of flexibility. So it's evolving, but it's really common sense is what you're talking about. And and what I like, it's archaic to think that pre-COVID, and I had this conversation when I joined an organisation a few years ago, I was taking some time off to go and work on a paper to write us up a big piece of business. And I was asked, are you going to be taking leave because you're not in the office? It's like, come on, we're not in the 60s. It's not Don Draper. So I think there'll be a nice settling of all this and technology enables that. So to close out work, Give me two or three things. What is tech going to look like? Because this this does my head in. When we look at that Jetsons article and they predicted that, I think, oh my, like, how, how can it even get more than that in forty years? What do you, what do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I'm not brave enough to predict tech in forty years, but like some things sort of well into the future. Like, say for example, you've got like the metaverse is going to be huge and and it's going to play a really big role in sports. So we'll touch on that then. But as far as sort of the metaverse in work, you've already got a whole heap of developers like Meta themselves who are planning this and Apple calls it um, the spatial computer. So rather than going into an office, rather than having a home office and rather than having a computer and a keyboard, you just whack a headset on, your computer screen comes up with all your different screens, your keyboard that you can touch like you're typing in thin air. You can then uh, hologram in to team meetings like you're in some kind of Jedi Council. That was like a 80s, 90s reference for you. And you can kind of do all of this stuff with this kind of technology. But this at the moment is wearing a really clunky headset. They're now developing it. So it's just going to be glasses. And then into the future, that's just going to be a contact lens. So when you say that, you're not saying they're predicting, they're, they're building this now. How, how many years will we be doing this? So you'll see like specs come on the market. So VR specs in the next couple of years, early prototypes, and then not naturally, there's sort of an adoption curve, which will mean in five years after that, it becomes a bit more common. Contact lenses, probably in about 15 years time. Here's my cognitive bias. I grew up, dad was a sheep and wool officer at the Department of Agriculture and he'd go into work. Yeah, he'd go into work five days a week, nine to five back then. Uh, there was a smoking office and you'd close the door. That was the, the smoking office, right? And so I've watched dad have a job where he'd go to work. So that's still imprinted in the back of my mind. So that's why I'm, I'm calling it out. It's cognitive bias. Because I first hear that and I go, really? How on earth is that going to happen? But for kids who grow up, let's say children that are born now that hear this and don't see what Trev did going to the office back in the 70s, they'll go, huh, that's work. That's a new mental model, a new frame. Yeah. So I'm trying to maintain this neutral space here going, yeah, that's what I've I've heard and it's what I've seen. It challenges me because I feel like going, no, like I like going to the office. I know that I do my high-end cognitive work. I'm a morning person. I look at my circadian rhythm. You know, I'm a gazelle. That's history. So yeah, I, I open my mind and just think like with my two little girls, Sophia's three, Millie's one, that's probably them. Well, Sophia and Millie will still be going into the office. They're just not getting in a car or getting on a train and going into a physical building. So they're putting on a headset, they're putting on contact lenses to go into an office where they'll still interact with everyone without needing to physically leave their own home. So I think that the, the biggest thing that I think is going to drive all of this, so there's a, a study that came out that said 45% of Gen Z feel like they can be more themselves in virtual environments versus 40% in person. So the first generation ever to say, I am more myself online than in real life. And this is what's going to drive the adoption of all of this kind of technology. And I was talking to someone who's part of that generation because, you know, for me, I'm a millennial. So I'm what you would call a digital native. But then for these people, they're digi sapiens. They have they didn't live through the transition. They never used to do handwriting essays and then they started typing them. They've only ever typed them. And so this group of digi sapiens, that's their expectation. And I said to them, 
why do you feel more authentic online and virtually? And they said, well, if we go into the metaverse, which they don't even call the metaverse, it's just it. So the metaverse is like an old person term. Um, But when they go into the metaverse, they're an avatar. It doesn't matter if you're skinny or fat in real life, if you're hot or if you're ugly, it doesn't matter how much money your parents earn and therefore the clothes that you can afford to buy. In the metaverse, you're an avatar. You're judging me for my personality. You're not judging me by what I look like and my socioeconomic status. And so there's a level of authenticity that comes with that. And so, for example, when execs say you need to come into the office because that's the only way to make relationships, bullshit. That's how you make relationships and you always have but for these emerging generations they make relationships probably better virtually online playing Fortnite, talking to people they've never met in real life who they've developed really strong connections with you just rolled it beautifully into the future of life did you watch todd sampson's latest documentary yeah so for anyone uh listening todd does these wonderful exposés where he looks at high performance and he's looked at relationships and love and where it's all going the technology now on robots, they're feeding that the robot basically becomes an AI version of you. And the more you talk to it, the more it laughs at your jokes. They inform it. So for you, it would be looking at futurism, looking at netball and sport. What are your other hobbies, Ben? Talking to you, cooking, playing with my dog. So they would feed you all of the previous performance intelligence podcast, uh, everything on dogs. And it makes sense. You fall in love with a robot because effectively, Todd said, you're falling in love with yourself and you just go... Oh, it's, it's, it's the classic Greek spoke about this. You know, you're looking at the reflection of you in the water. That's what you fall in love with. It's yeah, well, but, high but, level. So, so at the moment, though, there's this real dilemma around relationships with, with AI and robots. So there's a lot of people who maybe aren't so good at the dating game as you and me, and they have been engaging with social AI and developed emotional connections with AI and would call AI their girlfriend or boyfriend. And then there was this incident where one of the platforms had a power outage for 24 hours and people were up in arms, crying, going to psychologists saying, I feel like I've lost my girlfriend or boyfriend because the AI turned off for 24 hours. And that's going to be happening more and more as well. Can we just pause on that? What do you think about that when people lose power for 24 hours and they've lost their boyfriend, girlfriend, partner? As a young strapping fella, what what is your view on that? Can I just say Futurama actually predicted this in an episode many, many years ago where there was robot girlfriends and boyfriends based off celebrities and then the government had to ban them because no one was getting anything done. So there you go. It's not just the Jetsons. There's the Simpsons, there's Futurama, Star Trek, you name it. Yep. They've all done it. Okay, before you go on, how much TV and movies have you watched? All of it. (laughs) (laughs) No, good good chunks of it. (laughs) We did a reflection on a podcast with Peter Baines, which you've just released. Awesome, awesome. And you bought into a Liam Neeson movie on that, and I thought it was going to be, you know, I'm going to find you, I will destroy you. But it's a Liam Neeson movie I'd never heard of, and Wizards quoting it word for word. So so when you hear that, you go, oh, that's an episode of Futurama. Yeah, well, it's one of my hobbies as well I like to do, watch TV and movies. So your friends, uh, you go to the Wanderers games and you're crazy soccer or football fans, your friends in church group. Uh, your friends you grew up with, if one of them said, oh, here's my bot, her, his name is Android, whatever you call it, and they're dating a machine, what would you think? Well, I am almost 30, so I'm not, you know, it hurts me to say it, so I'm not really part of the younger crowd anymore. Ouch. But there's a very good saying online at the moment, which is you need to go outside and you need to touch some grass because you're just, you're terminally online. That's probably what I'd tell my friends. Younger kids, I don't know, probably they'd need professional help, but 
I don't know, as it gets more normal, who knows? My, my head's spinning, absolutely spinning. And when Wizard says go outside and get on the grass, we're not talking about the marijuana. <laughs> when we you know, get outside of the nature, people. So this isn't an episode on microdosing? No, it's not. Gotcha. No. We're going to do one of those coming up. Yeah, it's fascinating. I went to a session at South by Southwest on it. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's it's moved from, ooh, this is out there. Ooh, we shouldn't be doing it too. There's some real research. Tim Ferriss has led a lot of the funding behind the research. Yeah, right. That does my head in just thinking that's going to become normal. Mm. Yeah, and, and technology is going to play a big part in it. Technology is also going to not just reimagine life, it's going to reimagine death. For example, if you think about the, the evolution of deep fake technology, which is technology that in the future will be so sophisticated that you won't be able to tell whether or not it's me or a deep fake version of me that's talking to you on a computer screen because of it will look like me, sound like me, have the same mannerisms as me. But what happens when you die and people make deep fakes of you? It's kind of like if you've seen Harry Potter, like the people in the paintings who are able to have conversations with you. That's what we'll get to in the future. People are saying, well, do you have the right to that? Who owns the data for that? Are you able to sign a waiver that says, actually, I want to die like we used to back in the 90s and early 2000s and not live on through technology? So it's permeating life, death, intimacy. You know, we're seeing the, the advent of haptic technology, which is also coming into the sports space, but in sort of relationships and intimacy, I've done it before where you can wear this kind of vest and then someone remotely hugs the vest and you feel exactly where it's hugging you on the body and people are going to use that to reimagine intimacy how long is the vest uh the vest stops at your waist <laughs> did that sound as creepy as it felt absolutely <laughs> <laughs> the way that you wouldn't make eye contact with me as well when you said it because it just felt wrong you would have needed well that's my head's spinning one, one of the goals I have before I do a podcast, you met me, I was sitting down having a coffee. It's an intention. My intention today was to you know, show our audience how amazing you are and to challenge their thinking, but to get people to open up and to at least entertain what the future could look like. And that's going to be a real cognitive dissonance. I feel a cognitive dissonance with me. I'm sure a lot of people will feel that. So you've hit the intention. So much of this, is it, like we say futuristic, it could happen. What, what number do you give if you had to? And I sound like my son because I'll say, oh, Arch, we're probably going to go to the Gold Coast next holidays. What percent? And, and we say it's a joke, oh, about 69 to 74%. We just give him random numbers and then he's happy. So give me a percent. What percent do you think this is going to be likely? That kids of the future have relationships with a bot that we are flying to work in 2032, the year of the Brisbane Olympics in taxis. That's probably going to happen for sure. But this whole relationship stuff, what percentage? Close to 100. I guess so, so, and that's kind of the, the work of a futurist is not to make these wild outlandish predictions, but to use signals of today that says this is already happening somehow in some way, shape or form. And if we extrapolate it and evidence suggests that yeah, if we extrapolate it, it, it could be and it is highly likely. Um, and I guess that's the space that I play in. You get people who are a lot more loose and like to play around the edges. I'm pretty data-backed. And so a lot of the stuff that I'll talk about is nigh on close to certain that it's going to happen. Also brings up another whole bunch of thought bubbles on psychology, therapists. It's going to be very different. Like my, my, my latest keynote, Ben, you're challenging me. It's called The Power of Human Connection. One of the things we saw through COVID when people did shift offline or out of the office and, you, and you're working remote, 
The introverts loved it. The extroverts hated it. Most of us were somewhere in between. And then when everyone came back, the extroverts are high-fiving each other. The introverts are saying, can I work because I'm actually really liking it on Teams. So we've adapted to those models, right? So the power of human connection, I talk about no matter introvert, extrovert, and we're talking Carl Jung's definition, where you draw energy from, we need interactivity with others. The movie, Love Actually, is foundationally based on that Hugh Grant's voice, you know, Love Actually. It's all around us. I, I don't know. Where do we go on this? How do we come up with totally new models on schema, my personal identity, role identity, what it means to be a man, a woman, neutral, gender neutral, in between? It, it's doing my head in, mate. Yeah, and I think it, it's a recognition, though, that it is doing your head in rather than actually, you know, having this level of stubbornness that says this is the way that it's always been, this is the life that I've always had and therefore this is what it shall be. I think it's an openness and an understanding that things change, that there are things that are coming through with younger generations that we don't even know about, but that that's going to be the new normal into the future. Like a really micro example of this, right, is I've been doing a bit of work lately with people in education and they were talking about ChatGPT and they were saying, we're really worried that people are cheating on assessments by using Chat. GPT. And I said, well, that's your issue. You need to change your assessment. Don't try and catch them out using chat GPT. Change your method of assessment. You need to adapt. It's a shift in mindset. Um, They were saying, oh, but some students would normally fail and now they're passing. Well, if they're using the resources at their disposal to pass, then they're passing. Change your definition of pass and failure. And so I think it's just that mindset shift. And it at least starts with a recognition. And it's you kind of said before, it's this real generational shift as well. So for people who are particularly in the baby boomer generation, you're not going to see a large proportion of people who are fully on board with all of these new different technologies and kids staying and, and living their lives in the metaverse and all that stuff. But as long as they have an understanding and an appreciation of it, you don't need to adopt it. But over time, as we see sort of Gen Z and then Gen Alpha become the major generations in the workforce and in, in society, that's when we'll start to see this become the new normal. Mm. So talk to me about an area that's a little bit closer to home for me and I maybe feel a little bit more comfortable, lifestyle, longevity, health, fitness. Yeah. How's that going to change? Um, where do you want to start? Lifespan you spoke about. We're going to live longer. Have you read Dr. Peter Atiyah's book, Outlive? It's a no. time. It's massive. I've given it that's to- That's probably why I haven't because I can't <laughs> get intimidated by big books. It's, uh, it's, it's great. Great research. So Dr. Peter Atiyah, early 50s, has been a medical practitioner, a doctor in the States. Uh, by his own admission, he was an elite at uh, Go hard in sport. He was an ocean swimmer. Go hard at work. And then he had his epiphysis. Hey, it's not about going hard just for this period. It's the longevity. So he talks about health span and lifespan. So you want to live longer, but you want to be healthier. And it's all about the last decade. And, and it makes sense, right? That people age, lose muscle mass, lose balance, fall over, break a hip, break a femur, and their quality of life goes downhill. Yeah, But the two biggest takeouts, so if you don't want to read the term, Dr. Atiyah totally backs up what Tom and I say. Longevity is totally related to number one, VO2 max, the maximum amount of oxygen per milliliter per kilogram per minute. So it's a, it's a rating of your cardiovascular capacity. And the second one is increased lean body mass. So from a training point of view, you'd say to people do interval training, don't do the long junk bike rides or running, which is catabolic, wasting muscle, and then lift heavy shit. Yeah. So what, what is your prediction around what will gyms look like? What will just the way we live and, and focus on our health look like? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of your research backs this up as well, that we're leading these increasingly sedentary lifestyles, whether or not we're working from home or doing desk jobs and we're sitting at our desks or we're, you know, playing with, uh, you know, different types and immersing in different technologies. As Wizard said, get out, get your feet on the grass. I think that's going to be increasingly important. But I think that, you know, there will be a big push from a government perspective around these moving back to the way things were, which is these healthier, more mobile lifestyles, because they'll need to because they won't be able to fund the health system unless we start to go back towards that. So there'll be a lot around that in terms of gyms will still be very popular. I think we'll see and we're seeing a lot of really bespoke and and nuanced and niche kind of offerings. So I do altitude training. My friend sent me a link yesterday. They want us to do an underwater spin class, whatever the fuck that is. Underwater uh, spin. Apparently it's in Bondi. So of course it is. We might be doing would that. Would come via LA. So are you is your head underwater? Your head's not but everything else is. So I like a spin class. Don't know how that works. Um, but you know you can go for a bike ride and you can then ride down to Bondi Beach and you can jump in the ocean. You can do that. You just don't have to do it together. Yeah, but why not? And I think that it, but it comes back to sort of where this attention poor economy. And so if you can kind of smush two things together and save time, then why wouldn't you? So, you know, like that's why you're kind of seeing these. When sorts of you're in water, up. Ben, the water gives you a weightlessness. So you're not getting that density of your bone mass, which can lead to more um, becoming a nerdy exercise I thought it would be harder if you're trying to push, though, against the water. It'd be harder, but you need gravity. You need weight on your bones to increase the strength. So a uh, random fact that's got nothing to do with our presentation, but a lot of cyclists that finish in the like elite level, Tour de France riders and Giro riders, they have a extremely large amount of osteoporosis. And you go, really? But they're strong. They're on the bike. Yeah, but on the bike, they're not actually getting that bone density. Because when you jump or when you run, you put about eight to 12 times your body weight through your bones. So that leads to getting stronger bones. So yeah, right. we send a lot of our clients off to go and get a bone density scan. And uh, a lot of them come back, especially the mammals who just cycle and some swimmers, and they're really surprised that they've got poor bone density. And we'll say, well, you've got to walk, run a bit, go downstairs to actually yeah, get okay. that eccentric loading. So totally random fact, but anyway, we'll get off your spin class. I'm not – can you see Wizard? I'm, <laughs> I'm going back. I'm not doing not that one. Not endorsed by Andrew May. <laughs> no, no. I feel like the, the hitchhiker in something about Mary. No, it's not six-minute abs. It's seven-minute abs. You know, <laughs> Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> Give me something else. What else do you think we'll be doing around lifestyle? Let me sort of go into sort of the, the sports space, right? So from a consumer perspective, we're going to be seeing a lot more VR and augmented reality and, and mixed reality in sports. Um, so it's a much more immersive experience. But we're also going to be seeing organisers doing stuff in the metaverse. So I touched on this earlier. Really interestingly, so the 2022 Australian Open had more people visit in the metaverse than in real life. Almost 200,000 people visited the Australian Open in the metaverse. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back this truck up. More people watched the recent Australian Open, not, you're not, not saying online, in the metaverse. Yeah, and so um, you have an avatar and you go to Melbourne Park and you're walking around as an avatar, still seeing all of the different installations, still interacting with other people. And the really interesting thing about that, so the Australian Open core demographic for ticket holders in real life, females aged 40 to 55. In the metaverse, males aged 15 to 23. So different gender, different age demographic who are able to engage with it. But 
what was probably the biggest takeout for me. So the Australian Open, they sold these tennis balls as what's called NFTs or non-fungible tokens. So they have transferable value. They sold these tennis balls, 6,700 tennis balls that came from the games in the metaverse. And each ball has data from the game that it was played in. They made $2 million in two hours from selling these NFT tennis balls. We interviewed Craig Tilly as part of the previous podcast that rolled into this, or was the genesis of this called NAB Business Fit. And I know you interviewed Craig when you were at PwC, an amazing guy. Mm. The vision that he has had to get events, like they own a lot of the food carts and even musician acts and everything around it, although they put it all together. That's mind-blowing. Yeah. And the way that they do the Australian Open as well, you said like the music acts and everything, you know, it's an experience. You don't go just to watch the tennis. You go for the food, you go for the music. I mean, I went to see the Veronica's one year and it just happened that there was tennis playing. And so that's the kind of way that we're creating these these experiences. And I talked about haptic vests earlier as well. That's now coming into sport. So in the NFL, they have this thing called the fan jersey. So if a player on the pitch takes a knock, you feel exactly where that player took the knock as the fan as well. So it's becoming more experiential, more immersive, um, lots of buzzwords. But um, yeah, it's pretty cool for, for fans when it comes to the future of sport. Are you planning an upcoming conference or company offsite? For the past 15 years, I've averaged speaking at over 50 events each year, and I still love presenting at conferences as much as I did when I first started. To explore the different presentations I offer on a range of topics and themes, including physical and psychological well-being, becoming burnout-proof, connection and belonging. That's a new area I'm, I'm really enjoying presenting on. Neuroscience and behaviour change, mental skills and leadership and culture. Or if you'd like to understand our fully integrated conference experience with pre-event diagnostics, activities throughout the agenda, including the morning wake-up, energy breaks, team-building activities and digital resources to embed learning. To find out more information and to download a brochure, go to andrewmay.com slash keynotes. I was mentoring a sports psychologist a couple of years ago and he rang me. It was just before COVID and then during COVID. So talk about a great pivot in this guy's career choice. I haven't got uh, permission to share his name. Or I, haven't told, I haven't told him I'm going to talk about him openly. So I'll keep the name neutral. I'm sounding like a former partner in a consulting firm, Ben. But he rang me up and he said, Maisie, look, uh, I know you're dabbling or starting to do a bit of work in mental skills. He said, I've had this offer to work in esports. Do you know much about it? And I said, look, I've, I've been reading that there's stadiums now that they're purpose building for 35 to 40,000 people. He said, yeah, well, I've, I've had an approach from a bunch of esport athletes. He used the word athletes in Melbourne. And I don't know how to organise it. So I said to him, well, look, what sort of money are they earning? What are you think you're going to charge? He had no idea. I said, well, I charge them a nominal rate and say so you want a percentage of their earnings. And he did that. He would have made a bucket load. And I got a message from him and he said, now I should have taken a percentage of his percentage because I, I just did it randomly. You know, when you're not attached emotionally, you can give this view. That's a world I never thought of. So yeah. when I look at my mental skills practice, it's it's roughly a third of my time. So the Mighty Manly Seagulls, I work with a number of individual athletes. I'm just starting to work in rugby and a bit of overseas work as well. But it's all normal sports. So that that challenges me and excites me that down the track, would I, should I have some virtual athletes in my stable? And yeah. I'll make sure I ask 
to sign on a percentage of earnings. Yeah, so so esports is huge, right? So multi multi billion dollar industry. Currently, there's about 550 million esports spectators worldwide, active esports spectators, and big money in it. So a recent Saudi esports tournament, there was 45 million dollars in prize money. There was a 16 year old who won uh, up to three million dollars uh, as an esports player, and so it's big business. It's growing 20 20 to 21 percent year on year over the next 10 years. So if your mate earned that much now, he's in for a big pay packet in the future. You're going to get a call, champ. Soon we're going to renegotiate my contract. <laughs> but it, it, and it's not just esports, right? So there's um, also these hybrid um, sort of events. So um, in 2016, there was the first Cyberthon. And so that's sort of humans and machines. And so to give you some examples around some different uh, sports within that, it's kind of like an evolution of the Paralympics. And so there were powered wheelchair races. So people who are not just in manual wheelchairs, but like your electric wheelchairs, and they have to overcome different obstacles. Or there was a brain-computer interface race. So a a brain-computer interface or a BCI is a chip that gets implanted in your brain and it allows you to command different things. So for example, people who are quadriplegic can regain mobility and walk again by just simply thinking, I want to walk and they can walk. But that then translates to also being able to operate a computer. You can move a mouse, you can type on a keyboard without physically doing it by just thinking it. Um, So it's kind of like the genesis of mind control, but there's a BCI race where you have an avatar and a computer screen and you race that avatar through tasks simply by thinking it. So um, these are people who uh, have mobility restrictions, who have different disabilities, quadriplegics, and how they're also able to engage in a version of esports or non-traditional sport. I'll close one of our open loops and then I want to come back to normal sports and how that, like normal as far as I the mean, traditional like, yeah, sport. What are we going to call it in the future, right? Will it be called traditional sport, who physical knows? sport? Who knows? But you, in the Triple J interview, tri- tri- Triple J interview you did, you spoke about the suits that factory workers, builders can wear. So did the traditional, I think of my brother, shout out to Jed, I'll, I'll give you this episode. Mate, this is a really a like out. full May family episode. We've got Joe, we've got Trav, we've got, yeah, who have we missed out on? I just, Trying to make sure I connect everyone. Mum, hey mum, love you. It was her hey, birthday this week. But my, my brother's a brickie and he's a fire, oh, he's in the fire brigade as well and he does education now. He's sort of, he's, he's done a really good transition, Jed. But he tells me about some of his mates who are brickies. Uh, Jed's late 40s, so let's say mates of his who are brickies five, ten years older. Mm. That's bloody hard work. Yeah. Labor, lifting, people in factories. So there's suits now that help you become Superman so you can lift a whole lot more with these suits, right? Special technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're called exoskeletons. And if you think about like an Iron Man suit, that's a super advanced exoskeleton suit. But essentially um, what they are, they're this thing you kind of clip onto your back and it gives you through different physiology and and sort of all the science behind it, the ability to lift up to 100 kilos easily and safely. And so it means that people who work as brickies in manual labor can actually work a hell of a lot longer into their career because they're not feeling the strain and wear and tear of having worked in a physical trade for 20 and 30 years and therefore their body can't hack it anymore. And so it's a lot safer and it's yeah, just a lot more easier to go about doing your work. So it's, it's, yeah, that's going to be going into a lot of the blue collar professions and could very well be going into sort of sport as well, right? Well, I think the challenge on sport is 
Milo, the Greek warrior, the, the story goes that Milo got stronger because he got a calf and he did squats every day. And as the calf grew bigger, so did Milo's legs and his vastus medialis and all that beautiful leg definition. So it's called progressive overload in sport. You, you give some stress and then you relax. You give some stress and then you relax, train, relax, train, recover. So I don't see how that would come into sport per se, but a lot of stuff you've said today, I'm just going to have to listen to this and have a cup of tea or coffee, Ben, and just try and make sense of it. So back, back to something I do understand. Look at NRL now. Yeah. And in the state of origin this year, you had a player tracker. So you could say, yeah. I want to follow Daly Cherry Evans. Okay. Queenslander, I'll use Chez because he's our captain at Manly. Can't believe I went Queensland as my first example. Uh, but let's say you wanted to follow James Tedesco. And you can track them. So you now have cameras tracking athletes. What else is going? Is that going to look like? And what's the NFL doing? Because I think that's NFL, NBL. We yeah. import a lot of that technology to Australia. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it's being used more so from a bioperformance perspective in terms of that tracker technology. We're already seeing a lot of the athletes wear it so coaches can monitor fatigue markers so that they can then determine if a player is going to come off, how they'll nuance and tailor a particular player's recovery. So every NRL um, player has a GPS unit that they yeah. put in the behind the shoulders here and the performance data is downloaded by one of the exercise scientists. It looks at distance covered, meters acceleration, there's a whole GPS tracker, it looks at heart rate. So yeah, that, that data we get on players is really technical and nuanced. That's every player. Yeah, and, and you've got it in netball, you've got it in a whole heap of other sports as well. So I think that's kind of now becoming the new normal. We're just going to see more and more of that kind of technology come into uh, that space. The thing that I'm probably a little bit more concerned about is what's going to be the impact of drug evasion and doping and anti-doping and so what you know what we're sort of hearing and seeing is that the technology is becoming so sophisticated that there's already a whole heap of instances where people are evading and bypassing anti-doping authorities but what happens when that becomes the new normal that becomes systemic and what does that mean for the future of sport? Does that mean that professional sport will no longer exist? Does that mean that professional sport's less about ability, but more about the doping capabilities of teams and countries and, and whatnot? Or to what extent does consumer influence, and I think this is what will play out, but, but consumer or fan influence kind of play out that says, drug sheets are bad, we just won't support this sport or we won't support you if you do it. Mm. And we spoke about this in this podcast room was a month or so ago with Nick Jones, former Mr. World, Mr. Australia, Mr. Australasia. Yeah, and when same. we got That's into me, that basically. whole topic, yeah, well, similar. You'd know Nick from competing. But Nick openly spoke about testosterone, human growth hormone, and peptides, which is taboo in Australia. But you look at, you know, we're talking about movies, Hollywood movies, and we've got the Despicables 3, and they're just jacked. All these guys are. You know, <laughs> when you look at. And you didn't sound right. <laughs> you can tell you've got young <laughs> kids, right? <laughs> when you look at the Expendables 3, and I tell the story of driving in, down into KPMG, York Street, started spring, and I just went to my mate Murray. Oh, fuck. He said, well, what, what? Who have you seen walk past? Male, female? What? I said, no, no, mate. It's a bus of all these men. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Weasley Snipes. They're all you know, tapping the fountain of youth. But Nick and I had this conversation about in bodybuilding, like in open bodybuilding, it's known that people will take pets, performance-enhancing drugs. 
But what's really just mind-blowing is they talk now about genetic doping, so little changes to your genome that is undetectable. So, yeah, that's a whole different topic. Yeah, and, and they're also sort of getting into the space now of talking about what's called designer babies. So how do you actually influence this right from when or, or before a child is actually born? So they're talking about genetic manipulation so that you can try and avoid some really debilitating lifelong illnesses and disabilities. But then that could get to a point in the future where you start to say, what colour hair do you want them to have? Do you want them to be athletic? What kind of you know athletic capabilities do you want them to have? You want them to be a gymnast where we'll give them these sort of bio characteristics. And, and that whole, the ethics behind the, the, the debate around designer babies is playing out now because that is an eventuality of what could come from a really altruistic motive of let's try and improve quality of life to manipulating humanity. Yeah, I can just imagine that drop-down list. It's like when you buy a new Range Rover. You know, do you want these 19-inch alloy rims? Do you want the seat warmers? Do you want the extra Bose space in the stereo? And your parents making all those decisions for you before you're born without any identity as well because that's the predisposition and therefore the expectation they and society will have of you. Yeah, I'm going to need to listen to this a few times to make sense of it. Hey, I've, I've loved that you have provoked, that you've painted a picture. I, I love your optimistic view and you're smiling. I've got three more and then we'll do Performance Uncovered. Okay. Sex. What's sex going to look like in 40 years? Um, and I've waited long enough to have the sex conversation. Yeah, I didn't want to the be psychological safety yeah, to talk true. about sex. Yeah, didn't want to be um, uh, premature on that one. So I don't have my graphics here with me to support what sex could look like. So I'll try and paint a picture. I think it's going to be the whole notion of sex and marriage is going to be pretty disrupted. We're going to see, I think, a lot more open relationships. Um, so where people have non ethically non-monogamous relationships, we're going to see a lot more polyamory and this whole fluidity between relationships as well. I think the whole idea of marriage as an institution is going to shift quite significantly, particularly when we look at divorce rates now as well. And this whole idea of being with one person for life, I think is starting to unwind a little bit. And, and so we're just going to see a lot more liberal behavior in that sense. And we're going to see technology come into this space as well. Well, it already is, right? Like the VR sex is when they do MRIs or fMRIs to the what do you the the guinea pig, the virtual sex, it's exactly the same feeling results, yeah. chemicals. Yeah, as so it you is can do VR life. porn at the moment, right? And and what's you, that like? Um so the last time I did it now. <laughs> I haven't done it, but maybe I should under the, the guise of research purposes. Absolutely. <laughs> do you realise how many men are listening to this podcast around the world? Because we do have listeners around the world who are screeching in the car, jumping off the trains. Darling, I've got to do it for research. Ben told me. Well, yes. Yeah. So, um, basically what happens is, I never thought I'd be talking about VR porn on the podcast. Um, so basically what happens with VR porn is that you are immersed in the experience. So imagine that you are one of the porn stars and you are interacting with one of the others. And yeah, the neurochemicals elicit very similar reactions to if it's real life. We're going to see- <laughs> we, we pull out what we call best bits in this. We're like, I can't wait to see what footage you're going to put to this. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, you can tell how comfortable I am right now. Um, you, you've, you've, you actually, um, have, have you not talked about VR I've porn I've written before? about it, but I haven't talked about yeah, this it. This is good. It's yeah, good. this is good exposure therapy yeah. for well, me. Well, one of my other goals with you was to talk about some content you hadn't spoken about before, which makes it natural and authentic. And mm. um, I didn't have a goal to make you uncomfortable. Well, that's a bonus. Well, I like being uncomfortable. That's how you, you get challenged. But um, yeah, there's, there's going to be sex robots. There's um, a whole heap of new and immersive sex toys as well a whole heap of stuff which is gonna yeah really kind of change the change the game a lot of it is here we just a lot of us because of sort of societal expectations around shame and everything else don't necessarily scratch that itch but that a lot of the stuff's there it will just get increasingly more adopted the mind wanders the second bunch of questions diversity equality and inclusion i hope it's not anywhere near as big a discussion because it's normalized. Whereas I, I think there's a heightened discussion on that to, to bring it back to normal. I grew up in the fitness industry. If people were straight, gay, in between, I don't care. But that, that was my conditioning. But I do realize there's some people still who have these ridiculous old views. I just really hope that that's normal. Normalist part is like, who cares? Yeah, I, I think in terms of society, I think we're definitely getting there. Like, if you think, you know, if my grandmother, if she was still alive, staunch Catholic, was to think that there were people who are gender neutral, who are trans, who are polyamorous and all that sort of stuff, she'd turn in her grave. But it's so amazing to see that level of inclusivity as it starts to become, you know, more and more commonplace within society. You go to younger generations who are in school now and it's just not even a thing. Again, this whole idea of sexuality and gender and all of that sort of stuff, they just don't even don't even think about it. Um, there's no labels. There's no shame. When I was at school, I graduated school maybe like, oh, I don't know, between 15, 16, 17 years ago or something. I don't know, um, 2006, whatever that is. And no one was out at school. You would not dare come out if you're in high school. Whereas now, not only are people coming out, they're questioning gender and all of that sort of stuff. Whether or not you agree with it, that's a different thing. But I think in society, we're seeing that. And again, it's a generational shift. Within sport, I'm seeing some really awesome stuff and I'm seeing some quite sad and disappointing stuff. Like you go into the AFL, there's not an AFL player who's out, but then you have senior officials who say, yeah, I've got gay players in my club and we know who they are and we support and respect them, but the system doesn't provide an environment and the culture and the masculinity and all of that stuff doesn't afford the opportunity for people to be comfortable to come out. And I understand that. So I hope that that shifts. I think as far as women's sport goes, that's where I'm feeling really positive. Just following the Matildas campaign in and of itself, to think that in 1999, the Matildas were self-funded and to help pay to go to the World Cup, they shot a nude calendar. Like, that just wouldn't happen today. But they shot a nude calendar to try and get themselves to a World Cup. It's the only way they could try and get funding. I yeah. mean, that? And now they got paid $250,000 for each player for making the semis. And know? they captivated it. Now you're like, that was so good. And just watching their style of play, it was, it was wonderful. Like, well, I was overseas in a pub that was packed with people watching the Matildas in their finals as well. So it was, it was incredible to see that sort of outside of our own country. But the fact that, that sort of the momentum that's built with that, then that AFL came out and announced equal prize money for male and female teams. I think we'll start to see that play out more and more. So that's super exciting. And I think we will get to a point where kids who were born today will have to be told about a time where there was such a big divide between male and female sport. Mm. When you said that about going back to school, I think of in my year in Dubbo, St. John's College, like back we graduated 
89 or 1990. So for, for those guys at the school then to openly say they were gay in that environment, I just feel for them because it was football-oriented, Blakey out in the country. I do hope it is easier. I was thinking, having a bit of a laugh when you said that, I'm the only gay in the village. <laughs> well, in Dubbo, you, you, you could be. Um, statistically not, though. So so what, what, what is your view on that? What would you say to young men, young women? How, how do you encourage young women to embrace their sexuality and be who they are? And then what would you say to your grandmother if you had a conversation with her now? I mean, if I, if I was talking to my grandma, look, a lot of it comes down to, and this is sort of my own belief and perspective, but what does it matter to you? Like, I understand that you're going to have different views and I'm not going to change. My nana would not change her views no matter what I said to her. So I wouldn't try and change her views. But I think it just gives an appreciation and understanding around this is, you know, the standard stuff. This is a a genetic predisposition. This is not a lifestyle choice. These people, you know, when they have people who put these expectations and pressures on them are suicidal. They have depression. They have debilitating lifelong mental illnesses. And so... To just respect and let them go about their life, it has no impact on you, but it can make a big difference to these individuals. So I think that's kind of what I would say to her. To young kids, I think that they're in a really fortunate environment where it is very inclusive in a way that you and I never experienced, but it really comes down to finding your tribe. Like, you know, there are always going to be other people who are trans, gender diverse, sexuality diverse, whether or not we're talking about religion, ethnicity, whatever it is. You can find your tribe. You can actually connect a lot more easily with them online now with social media, with online communities. So find that tribe and that's your support network and and stick to that rather than trying to mould to some idea or predisposition around what you think society expects of you. Mm, Well said. I'm sure your grandmother is looking down, learning. Hopefully not up. (laughs) Yes, hopefully not up. And she'd be proud of her young grandson. Yeah, I hope so. The world is changing. Sometimes some people might be listening to this going not fast enough, but you've painted a really optimistic future where we look at different ways of working, different ways of living, playing sport. And I love wrapping this all together around inclusion and diversity. So now, Dr. Ben Hamer, we've got to the time in the podcast interview we call Performance Uncovered, 13 rapid fire questions. Hit me with your first response. Number one, what is your favourite movie? You've already said it, Love Actually. Really? Yeah, every Christmas Eve. Hi, kids. Here's an important message from your Uncle Bill. Don't buy drugs. Become a pop star and they give you them for free. And I do believe uh, it's a commercial break. Two, what song do you know all the lyrics to? Any trashy 90s song. Give me one. Hit me baby one more time. Hit me baby one more time. So you know it. I do. What food can't you get enough of? Chocolate. It's a near addiction, which I didn't want to bring up with you of all people, but chocolate. Everything in moderation. (laughs) It's not in moderation. As long as you get your VO2 max up and as long as you lift lots of heavy stuff. Number four, what book has had the biggest impact on your life? I can swear, right? Yeah. So The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Mark Manson. What a great book and so simple. He sold tens of millions of copies and you're an author yeah you're a bona fide author don't you wish you'd written a book like that yeah but just like so simple in terms of pick your battles you don't have to care about everything and it just makes such a big difference five what is your most meaningful possession sounds bad but my phone but there's a reason why 
that reason is? Well, it was rapid fire, so I don't know if I left the air of mystery. So I have on it where like every hour it changes photos of my dog. So I like that. And being on the other side of the country from my parents, that's how I get to talk to and connect to them every day. So, yep. Question six, what does your weekly fitness routine look like? So for netball, I basically go to the gym or do fitness every day. So at the moment, netball or games or training is three times a week. And then I do hit classes, which is normally altitude training. And I travel a lot for work. So if I do, I'll just make sure I stay at a hotel with a gym where I can lift heavy shit, as you'd say. And what's up next on the calendar for either New South Wales or Australian netball? So I play mix for Australia, but the men's Australian team, they've got a tour coming up against New Zealand that's following with the Diamonds. So that's one to watch out in October. Next year, we have nationals in Brisbane, uh, so where I play for New South. And then I think there's an Australian mix tour towards the back end of next year. Okay. Question number seven, what is your favourite failure? My favourite, I don't like have one that stands out, but like there was a time where I failed at something when... It was this, and it was probably about 10 years ago where I had this sort of light bulb moment where I was like, failure is actually a good thing. And I don't know what that exact failure was, but that represents what my favorite failure is because I used to get so beaten up and downtrodden about failing. And now I just look at it as essentially something that helps me to learn, grow and and strive stronger. (laughs) He can come back. (laughs) I was about to say it and I'm like, do I? Do I? Unintentionally. Uh, Question number eight, what do you do to recharge? So sort of macro and micro. Macro, I, if I've had a really busy long period, I like to go back to Perth where I'm from. It's just a much slower pace. My sister lives right opposite the beach. So I go to the beach every day. Like that's awesome. If it's sort of just after like a long day or a couple of days, Netflix and chill. In the truest sense of Netflix and chill, not the other. I don't even know what the other is, so um, I'll just carry on. Question number nine, how do you prepare for key performance moments? I think about it whether it's sort of in sort of high performance with sport or in life, sort of around sort of trust the process and it is a process. So whether or not I'm about to get on stage to do a keynote or play a grand final, it's not what you do on the day of, it's the years of work that's led up to it and in the week before, et cetera. So just doing all the right things that you need to do and then being prepared. So don't, you know, rock up having not done any prep and said, I'm going to wing it and expect to get some amazing outcome out of it. Mm. Quick diversion, I'll come back to the next question. I'm proud of you because when we worked together at KPMG, you said to me one day, I'd love to be doing speaking like you and how do you do it? Do you remember what I said to you? No, I know we've had the conversation. I said advice that I got from the wonderful, the late, great Doug Maloof, who every speaker in Australia back 20 years ago who was starting went and spent time in Dougie's office in Surrey Hills. And he said, speak for free, get as much experience as you can and then start to speak for a fee. When I look at your last month, it looked like you did eight, nine, ten keynotes, multiple industries. You're killing it. Well, yeah, I never realised that that was a thing that, that, well, I never realised that people would pay to hear me talk. So, um, yeah, it's pretty good that you can actually make a bit of a career out of it. I'm proud of you. Like, I've loved watching your evolution. I've loved watching you grow with confidence. You talk about the range of the range of work you had from studying to KPMG to PwC. Now you've gone out there and you're totally disproving those people that said there's only one Dom at Atlassian and doing all that. You're killing it, mate. So I'll get back to the questions. Number 10, what keeps you up at night? Uh, at the moment, the renovation that I'm going through. <laughs> You're renovating a house? Yeah. And it was meant to take three months and it's taken a year so far and still going. Tell the builders to knock off about 6pm, come back the next day. Don't do 
24-7 runners. I would just enjoy it if they came consistently and not one day every few weeks. <laughs> question 11, related question, what is your number one productivity tip? I think for me what I've learned is like what you do as your bread and butter, which is rest and recovery. Uh, I think that, you know, this whole idea of you can race, but, you know, you can't race and race and race. The idea of a peak is that you then start to drop off. And I think that I used to keep trying to push through and just even if I was tired and I was falling asleep, I'd stay in front of the computer because I felt if I was physically there, then I was being productive. But whether it's a micro break, whether it's having more restorative rest and then coming back to it, you actually do much better work and you get a lot more done in the sort of allotted period of time. You're a good student. Number 12, who has been your most influential mentor or mentors? Yeah, this sounds really corny, but it would be my parents and for not obvious reasons. My parents would would say that they're not intellectual or, you know, not politically aware or any of that stuff. And and I I disagree with it, but they're very self-deprecating in that regard. But they have always instilled these two things for me my entire life. One, we, there's this saying, they always say you can't put a price on your health. So don't put off the doctor's appointment. You know, if you feel your clothes are getting a bit tight, well, don't buy bigger clothes, like maybe just kind of be a little bit more conscious of it. My mum's a little bit too on that point with me. Like, yeah, I won't say what she said to me when I was home the other week. Um, no, she, she, she does this like subtle fat shaming that she doesn't know that she does. And then I'm like, Mum, you can't say that. She's like, no, I don't mean it like that. So, yeah, it's classic parent behaviour, but can't put a price on your health. And the other thing with me is that they always said, as long as you try, we don't care what happens. And I used to hate that when I was in high school because if I got a B, I was pissed off. But now sort of as I'm a bit older, a bit more mature, that's really sort of kind of drummed into me that I've just taken some of that expectation off. I've tried to reevaluate what was an unhealthy relationship with achievement and kind of evaluate it more around follow my energy, follow my passions, do my best work. I don't need to be the best at everything and that's fine. And that's kind of only now paying dividends from them saying that 20 years ago. And that's a great roll into question 13. What is your definition of high performance? I think it's very different for, for different people. Like, I, just like how I think the definition of success is very different for different people. Like, my brother, very different to me, didn't complete year 12, but would arguably be much more happier than I am. And then I would argue much more successful than I am. So, I guess, though, for me personally, high performance is race and rest not being complacent and pushing yourself, whether that's in the gym, whether that's cognitively and, you know, taking on new experiences, seeking adventure, being around people that also are like-minded that, you know, who want to catch up and go for a, a hike as opposed to just always, you know, getting on the piss. But yeah, that's kind of off the top of my head riffing, high performance for me. Those people listening to this who have gone, wow, I want more of that guy to talk about the future of work, the future of life, the future of sport, some of the really interesting segues and ramps and off-roads I took you on. What's the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, Dr. Ben Hamer on LinkedIn. And so, yeah, that's where I post a lot of my content. And I have a book coming out in April next year. So it's called A Postcard from the Future, all about the stuff we spoke about, but also talking about the kind of foods we'll be eating, the homes we'll be living in, the cities, what they'll look like, the cars and transport we'll be using. So be on the lookout for that one. Great name of a book, A Postcard from the Future. Thank you. So two open loops, just to wrap it up. Uh, one is the stripper story. I've got to finish that. So when, like you're speaking now, when you do good presentations, we were talking about this before we went live, you know, the best way to grow a speaking business is to do Strip. good talks. Do good talks. 
So I, I was training a stripper when I was a personal trainer many years ago, and she got really good results. And then I started training a couple of friends. So I had a, a stable of strippers. And then they, um, I, can I say this? Where's your workout whether you keep this in or not? But it got to a stage where I had quite a lot of them, and they wanted contra rather than cash. <laughs> that, that was a very awkward conversation as a, what was I, 27, 28, tall, skinny, big hair and had the hoop earring, just finished my running career. That was a fascinating conversation. Yeah, I mean, fascinating, but then also you were like, yeah, all right. And so well, close the it. rest I, is history. I, I, I never breached that line when I was training. I always had a, a mantra was the, and code Is of the ethics. disclaimer when I was training? And the final... <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the final close out is you. What do you reckon you'll be doing in 40 years? Look, I think like I'm finally getting to the point in my career where I'm feeling a connection to purpose. I think I've always just done what made me happy out of what was available to make money. Whereas now it's less around that and, and I feel like I'm doing something that I'm genuinely passionate about where I feel like I'm actually helping people as well, which I never thought I'd be able to do through my line of work. So it's like, I'm not, a, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a teacher, but yeah, I feel really connected to what I'm doing. And so to be honest, I hope I'm doing more of it. I hope I'm still being afforded the opportunity to do this kind of research, to share the message, whether that's through writing, through keynotes, through social media, and being able to help not just organisations, but individual people um, to feel more aware of the future and what's coming so they feel more in control of it and to try and reshape the narrative so that it's a future that we're really excited and optimistic about. There are challenges and concerns and things we need to overcome, but not letting that define what the future could be. I think you've chosen the right career path or you could say the career path has chosen you. Thank you for your time today. I'm intrigued. I'm going to have to listen back to this and just get my head around. You've really challenged some of my mental models, which is good. So you've got me and I'm sure you've got our listeners thinking, now come here, give me a big hug and let's get out of here. Have a cuddle? Yeah. Got it. I, I gave you a handshake at the start today. You said, come on. No, it's cuddles. Hey, thank you. I've really enjoyed today. Cool. Thank you very much. We're back in the studio, Andrew, after chatting with Ben Hamer earlier today, and we're just here to do our reflections. So I just want to start with The Simpsons, Futurama, Black Mirror, TV, The Jetsons, TV shows have been predicting the future for years. My kids are going to listen to this and say, Dad, I should be watching more TV because Wizard and you <laughs> said all of these TV shows predicted the future. I had three observations, Wizard. Number one is you. Your knowledge of movies is insane. I want to pull on that thread a little bit. Two, it was the Jetsons. Those 14 predictions, how uncanny, back in 1962 when Hannah and Barbera started the Jetsons and they just threw out these wild ideas. I can even remember seeing the flying cars. Must have been early 80s, so I would have been like eight or nine years of age and going, oh, it'll never happen. So I actually have <laughs> this, wow, that is happening. And my third point, I've got a real cognitive dissonance around some of the scenes, some of the future that Ben is talking about. But can we start about your knowledge of movies? Every time we do a podcast, 
you say, oh, that reminds me of that movie, Liam Neeson, or this movie, or that movie. And I said to you during this podcast, how many hours have you spent, young fella, watching movies, watching TV shows? <laughs> yeah, look, I, so you know how you have that useless skill, you say a reverse engineer, you can see words backwards? Say, I have a CET later, I want that clats a draw. Okay, Caps, you're like, I've got on that clats a draw. Yes, first time you did that, I thought you were having a stroke. I was going to call an ambulance. I have a weird skill where I can just remember things from fictional worlds. So it's not just movies and TV shows, it's books, games, you name it. If I see something that I like in a fictional world, I, I don't know why I remember it. It's completely useless and I'll never make any money out of it, but there you go. Is it like a photographic memory on topics you love? Kind of, yeah. I think we're going to have to do a future podcast with a movie reviewer or someone. Who, who would who would just be your ultimate guest to talk to about movies? If you could get, not so much movies, but if you could get someone in to talk about Warhammer 40,000, I could literally talk about that topic for 24 hours straight. Do you know there's so many people listening to this going, what the hell is Warhammer 40,000? Yeah, it's, it's, so at its core, it's just a little game about plastic miniatures that you play on a tabletop, but there's books and all sorts of games and everything about it. Right, we'll try and find someone. I don't know where they are. If you're listening to this, <laughs> Henry you're an Cavill. expert on... Yeah, he is. He's a huge Warhammer Actually, nerd. I saw an interview with him and some girl took the piss and he got quite offended. Yeah. Have you seen that? Because uh, he, he'd just done Superman and mm. this interviewer, I think it was on English TV, tried to take the piss and he cut the interview really short. Yeah, yeah. So let's not do that. Let's keep going. So number one was your knowledge of movies. I love how you can always bring it back to a scene. I'm going to have to try and get in Warhammer 40,000 just for you to surprise you down the track. Now, to the Jetsons. Yeah, I, I, watching the Jetsons growing up, I can often remember mum especially saying, Go, your father's going to be home soon. Got to do your homework and stop watching TV. <laughs> now, mum, TV was actually a really good education tool back then. I don't know whether I Dream of Genie gave us much, but the Jetsons gave us a futuristic vision. It's uncanny, wasn't it, when we were talking about a number of those predictions. There's articles out there. There's, there's, I think, a whole podcast as well dedicated to The Simpsons and how much of the future that is predicted. I know, I thought it was hilarious the, the whole time you were talking about all these crazy technologies and I was like, they talked about that in Star Trek, you know, AR, VR headsets and then exoskeletons comes from the book Starship Troopers back in the 50s. There's just, it all, you can, pretty much any modern technology you can link back to an old TV show, movie or book. I think next time we interview a futurist, we'll get you to do it and link it all to TV. What <laughs> other observations did you have before I talk about my cognitive dissonance? Yeah, well, I mean, this is kind of part of that, but the... When you're talking about people falling in love with AI chatbots, I read an article a few years ago. There's one in China that's been around for a long, long time now, and it's become so synonymous with people going to the bathroom and chatting to it on their phone. They're now calling bathroom breaks Jiaoshe Time, which is the name of the AI chatbot, because well over 100 million people in China at the time of me reading that article are using this chatbot. So when people go to the toilet, no matter what they're doing, they're sitting there, maybe standing there for some of the guys, and they're looking at it so they mm. can actually track. That's that's phenomenal. Yeah, it's crazy. So, yeah, it's, it's so common that going to the bathroom is now called gel tray time. That is also linked to my cognitive dissonance. You know this because you poor man have to follow me to a number of talks and you film them. But I've been talking about how work was a place we used to go to pre-COVID. Now, when I was going to KPMG, I'd go into Barangaroo five days a week unless I was at a client site or traveling. Then when COVID hit, we spoke about work is something you do. Now, whether you do it in an office, whether it's a hybrid hub or whether you do it in your home. So part of the cognitive dissonance for me is I've read about 
VR in the future, but I've never really sat in it and thought, what would it look like for me? Ben was so articulate the way he explained today, specifically the VR headset, which has full 3D representation of the workplace. And he just rattled off there that you put your headset on and you can be at work in Sydney, you might be in Dublin or London, and you're there with everyone else or you're in the metaverse. And just the way he said it, and there was no laugh, no smile as far as, oh, I'm taking the mickey. It was real. And then I just had this whole disconnect because my dad was a sheep and wool officer with the Department of Agriculture for 37 years. Then he got a promotion. He worked with Special Livestock, which was alpacas and goats. And you know, you've heard me say this, you can't write this shit. That was Trev's work. So a lot of my schema, the collection of thoughts I have has been framed from a young age, seeing dad went to work. So I think I'm really cool and hip because I've been able to work hybrid for years. Well before we had this disruption, you know this when you started working with me, I would work from home a couple of days a week because that's when you get a lot of stuff done. But then when Ben's talking about this, not like it's some futuristic around the corner in 40 years, he's talking very soon. It just challenges my whole mental models. And I've got to step back and be neutral, be open. Look at how is this going to impact my kids. I, I often bring it through you know, my kids. So I can't be the dinosaur going, this will never happen. So yeah, I've got a real gap to try and learn more about this and to try and catch up. Yeah, the future is now, old man. <laughs> Get with the now. <laughs> uh, any other observations from your end? Yeah, one more from me. Uh, as a team, you know, we have a very diverse culture. We're a very diverse group and it's always interesting you know, seeing that play out and the practicalities of it. And when Ben was talking about the AFL players, you know, the, the coaches know that some of their players are gay, but they won't say who. I remember hearing last year there is one openly gay professional soccer player in the entire world. That's over 130,000 people play professional soccer. There is one of them who is openly gay, and he only came out last year. Yeah, he's in Adelaide. He plays he? for Adelaide, yeah. So you can't tell me that out of 130,000 people that there's only one player. Mm that has a same-sex relationship. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And to contrast that with, for example, the Matildas and women's sport, it's very openly spoken about that there are a number of women that are in same-sex relationships and it's just not really an issue. And so there's obviously still that time that the men's game needs to catch up with in that, to, in, in that culture. And Ben spoke about it, society is catching up slowly but surely and sport seems like it's the last bastion. In wrapping up with... I'm just loving the range of conversations we're having with a whole bunch of different people. As you said, diversity is actually one of our values, but we're getting to live and breathe it. And what Ben was speaking about, as far as the future, it is so diverse. We're going to work very differently. We're going to live very differently. We're going to consume and play sport very differently. Oh, how could we miss that the, the bit about sex? Were you going to leave that? Like, we're both here giggling. I can't wait to see what video you do on our promotion on that. But we were talking about the VR and headsets and that conversation got very, very messy. I mean, I do have a VR headset myself, so I might have to do a bit of home research on that one. Okay, I'm just going to cover my <laughs> monkey eyes, monkey ears. We're going to get out. Uh, thank you, Wiz. <laughs> do we want to finish on that? Yeah, why not? Yeah, done. All right, get out of here.